Um, we will continue our way through the Gospel of John uh, this morning. We'll find our way into uh, the second chapter. Now, in the first chapter, of course, we saw that wonderful prologue that many of us uh, may uh, remember, and we, we see John the Baptist come on the scene as the one who is the first witness uh, to Jesus Christ. And we also see the beginnings of what, we, what John kind of counts up for us uh, through multiple days that he mentions the first week of Jesus' ministry that actually will come to conclusion um, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning as we read that this happens on the third day, which would likely be the very end of the week, likely the seventh day is whenever this uh, takes place. Now what we're going to see this morning, at least at the beginning, is that Jesus' first week, I think, ends in maybe an unexpected way, not a way that you would expect, not a way if you were one of Jesus' disciples, maybe not the way that you would expect things to end. But ultimately the point um, that, that John wants us to see as we look at this text this morning is that we, he hopes, I think, for us, that we will unmistakably see Jesus' glory. So let's look at the passage now. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And he, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six, six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana, in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, today we ask that you would help us to see Jesus, that we might see his glory through this first miracle recorded in John. Might we, as we pray throughout this Gospel of John, might we get to know our Savior, better. And might you certainly be at work doing that today. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our hearts so that we might receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this ending of Jesus' first week, it starts off in kind of an unexpected way. And so as I was thinking of, okay, what is unexpected in this world? What kind of illustration could I use? Of course, my mind went to a book that starts with an unexpected party. Some of you may know the chapter, the very first chapter of The Hobbit, right? Um, Bilbo is a simple hobbit, right? He likes a simple life, and Gandalf suddenly steps into his life and comes into his home. And, and Gandalf's telling him, you know, I've been looking everywhere for somebody to go on a great journey with me, but I can't find anyone here, of course, in the Shire. And what does Bilbo say? I should think not in these parts. We are playing quiet folk have no use for adventures, nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things, make you late for dinner. And I can't think what anybody sees in them. 
Bilbo didn't want to go on a venture. He didn't want excitement in his life. But what happens the next day? He has invited Gandalf to come back for tea. But instead of Gandalf, who's the first one to knock on the door? <laughs> but, but one of the elves. and Not one of the elves, I'm sorry. One of the dwarves. How could I get that wrong? Um, one of the dwarves. And then another dwarf. And then another dwarf. And another dwarf. And they just keep coming. Finally, Gandalf comes in. And basically what's happened is a great party. It's suddenly happening inside of Bilbo's house. There's drinking, and there's laughing, and there's eating, and, and finally they pull all sorts of instruments out, and they begin singing, and suddenly it's a party. It was unexpected for Bilbo. This wasn't what he was expecting that day. He was expecting another quiet day in the Shire. I can only imagine, as I was thinking about this, that at least a couple of Jesus' disciples must have sensed a bit of that as they go through this first week with Jesus. You'll remember we talked in the last chapter, the first two disciples that come to Jesus were previous disciples of who? John the Baptist, right? And so the first two, Andrew, and then another one who's not named, which leaves us actually thinking, most likely, it's probably the Apostle John. He doesn't mention his name anywhere in the Gospel of John. But these first two disciples were first disciples of John the Baptist. They go on up to Galilee, they pick up a couple more disciples, and now here we are at the end of this first week, and where are they at? They're at a wedding feast. They're at a party. Now, why would that be surprising for those disciples? Well, I think especially for John the Baptist's disciples, this would have been especially surprising. You remember John the Baptist, he had a different type of ministry. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says this, for John, came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon, but the Son of Man, speaking of himself, of, of Jesus, he says what? Je Jesus, he says, I came eating and drinking. Previously in the, the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast and yet you and your, your disciples, you do not fast? Maybe Jesus says something that's actually helpful for us as we get into our passage this morning. What does he say? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You see, for those disciples of John the Baptist, this must have been a difficult week. They weren't used to going to parties. They weren't used to drinking. Now here they are at Jesus' just very first week, end of Jesus' first week of ministry, and here they are at a party. So strikingly different in the ministry that they had with John the Baptist. So they're at this party, they're at this wedding. Of course, we, we, we know what happens. The, the wine runs out. Let's say a quick word there. Now in our context, maybe we don't need to say much here. But I feel like we should still say it. That This is real wine. Let's not mistake anything. This is real wine. That, that, that's why the Master of the Feast later on is going to talk about, well, usually you save your bad wine for last, right? Why? Because people have imbibed enough that they don't notice that suddenly you're giving them the bad wine. And, of course, we've read those words of Jesus where, where people are accusing him of drinking. The Bible often speaks of the positive nature of alcohol, the positive nature of wine. The, the psalmist in Psalm 104 says that it, Wine does what? It gladdens the heart. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you need to stop drinking so much water, and you need to drink some wine. It's going to make your stomach better. Okay? So that we see these positive things that come out. We, we could go. We're not going on a long search there this morning. At the same time, though, 
the Bible speaks negatively about drinking too. We see it even in the Apostle Paul. What does he say? He says very clearly, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Okay, so our approach, and our approach this morning as we think about this, yes, this is alcohol. Drinking is, alcohol is not sinful. It's also not sinful to abstain from, from drinking. But we need to be clear, getting drunk is sinful. Yet it's also sinful to judge another for either drinking or not drinking. Okay, so I want to say that, to phrase it all up. I remember a class back many years ago in seminary days with D.A. Carson. He's from Canada, and he confesses, you know, he's a bit of a teetotaler. He doesn't drink. But he said this, I remember this. He said, if, if I were ever at a, at a dinner party or, or, or at a table out to dinner with other believers, and they suddenly, someone started saying something about how, I can't believe that any Christians would drink, or, you know, that's a sin, or in any way, begin to intone that, he said, I would immediately say, pass the port. Pass the wine. Somebody who doesn't drink. Because we, we can't get these things confused. I want to make sure we, we, we understand these things. So we, we see Jesus' first week here. And how does it end? It ends in a celebration. It ends with a party. And we're reminded of who Jesus is and who John's already told us that he is. He is the life, the light of men. He, he comes to, to bring life. And as we're going to see as we go through chapter 2 and chapter 3, as we continue to move on in John, we're going to see that he comes to do what? But to make all things new. And he brings new things. He's going to bring newness in just this incredible miracle of turning water into wine. I hope we continue to look at this. We'll see this more clearly this morning. Now, this wedding that Jesus is attending, we don't really know many of the details of the wedding. It's kind of interesting. Usually, you know, and I've officiated a few weddings. Y'all, we've all been to a lot of weddings, I'm sure. And we know who is the star of a wedding, right? I saw some of you just mouth the bride. It's supposed to be the bride and the groom, right? But yes, let's, you know, it's usually the, there, there's a, uh, an even main character, right? right? The bride. What do we see here in this passage? Jesus at this wedding. John's telling us the story of what takes place at this wedding, but, but who seems to be almost completely absent from our story? We never even meet the bride. The, the bridegroom is just, he's spoken to. We, we hear nothing from him. The focus is instead on Jesus at this wedding. The story here is not about the radiance of the bride. The story hopefully will reveal to us the radiance of Jesus Christ, his glory. And we see this glory coming through in the midst of the crisis, right? There's a crisis at this wedding. What is that crisis? There, the wine ran out. Now, most of us would think, well, that's not the end of the world. But in this culture, this was kind of the end of the world. This was the responsibility, in particular, was the responsibility of the groom to provide for this party for all these people and supply for them. And one of the, the provisions, one of the things that you have to provide for is provide for plenty of wine. And in a shame-based culture like they were in, this would have been very bad for the wine to have ran out. You know, I, I think of, you know, we're going to have a potluck in a few minutes downstairs and you know, we invited you, Peter already did, and I'll invite you again at the end. If you didn't bring anything, please come. We want you to join us, and I hope we have enough food. You know, at the same time I say that, I hope we have enough food. And we will, but I hope we have enough food. Because it's embarrassing if we don't. And so the wine has run out. And so what happens? 
Jesus' mom, Jesus' mom, she's at the wedding too. We assume that she's there. Somehow this must be a family member. She's somehow involved in the behind-the-scenes stuff. So she finds this out. She comes to Jesus, and she says, verse 3, they have no wine. Jesus responds to her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, some of you may be tempted to cover your little kid's ears. You don't want them to hear, hear Jesus talking to his mama like that, right? So let's talk about that for a minute. He starts off by calling her woman. That's not typically the way one addresses a mom, right? And that's not a typical way in his world that somebody would address their mother. NIV, if you have one of those in front of you, it says dear woman, which that's not quite right because the word here is woman. So what's going on here? It is a bit abrupt what he's saying, but it's not the extent of, I think, being abrasive. Okay? It might be something like this. If you were like me and you grew up down south, whenever you're at a grocery store and you're checking out, what do you call the person behind the register? You say, ma'am, to her. Now, there's a a bit of a problem there, and that's kind of what this word is here. It's kind of like saying ma'am. The problem is, is down south, we're also trained to say yes, ma'am, to our moms, too. And that's not what John means here, okay? So, So it doesn't work perfectly, but you begin to get the sense. This isn't the typical way of talking to a mother, but it's also not abrasive. But it is a bit abrupt. But it's also the way that Jesus is going to address his mom at the very end. You remember? He's hanging from the cross. And there is the apostle John and his mom together. And he says to her, woman, behold. I don't think there's any disrespect at all meant there. But he continues. He doesn't just say, woman. He says, what does this have to do with me? Again, sounds a bit abrasive, but, and the question he's kind of asking is, why are you involving me in this? Asking the question, is this really something that I should be involved in? Given my ministry, my ministry is just getting started. This is the first week of my ministry. Is this something that I really should be concerned about? Wine at a party? You see, at this point, we see that Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Jesus, they have very different concerns, right? Mary's concern is personal obligation, the obligation of, of her family member, probably this groom, right? This obligation. But what about Jesus? What is he concerned about? At this point, as he's begun his ministry, he is concerned about his messianic mission. His concern has now become the mission that he has before us. And so what we see here, and by this language, understand what Jesus is doing. He's distancing himself from his mom. He's setting up a distance maybe where it hadn't really been before as he's beginning his work as the Messiah. He's teaching her something. You have to come to me the same way everyone else does. Just because you're my mom, you do not get special access. You do not get special access to Jesus. And here's the thing, if, if he is, and I, I think Jesus, even when he responds this way, he, he already knows what he's going to do, right? He already knows that he is going to do this miracle. But he wants to make sure that, that there is no misunderstanding of the reasons why he's doing it. The reasons why he's going to do this miracle, the reason why, John's going to tell us at the end, is it's for messianic reasons. Right? It's for his greater mission. It's not just to fix the problem here at this one wedding. 
We see this even at the end of the verse, right? What does he say? My hour has not yet come. That hour, it becomes somewhat of a big theological term even in the Gospel of John. It's a technical term, and it points to what? What is that hour? It's Jesus' death. How interesting that here Jesus is, his very first week of ministry, just a few days in. He's at a wedding. He's at a celebration. And where is his mind? He's already thinking. He's already knows where he's heading. He already knows that that hour is coming. Even as he's at that wedding party, the weight of that hour must have been upon him. And his mom, you see her response. What does she say? Do, do, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, it may seem to indicate to us here that maybe Mary understood more about this conversation than you and I do. Maybe she got some of the depths, maybe even some of the depths that we've been talking about. It doesn't seem as though she took it as a rebuke. And yet, in her, in her response, she still seems to have hope. Maybe there's beginning, I don't know if it just completely happened in this moment, but the beginning of a transition for her, of, under, of, of her moving from him just being her son, to know now, I too must come to him as the Messiah. And so she holds out hope that he'll still answer it, maybe understanding that she no longer has that special access to him. We, we see his mom, in a sense here, expressing what? Faith faith in her son, but not in her faith in her son to do sonly things, but faith in her son to be the Messiah, to be her Messiah. We, we see it beginning to come to fruition here, I believe. Now, what is Jesus going to do about this situation? There's a lack of wine. We see in verse 6 that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These, these water jars were for this purification ceremony ritual that they would do before eating. Okay? And there's a lot of water here, 120 to 180 gallons. This is a lot of water. It means there's probably a lot of people at this feast, right? A lot of people at this wedding banquet. And they all, had, you know, the servant would come pour the water over their hands so that they could be ritually clean, ceremonial clean before they eat. I'm reminded of when my kids were little. All of them, we experience this. This is like really little. This is crib little. This is diaper little. Many of you parents, you've been there before. Your child is crying in the night. You pray that they'll just go back to sleep, and then finally you have to get up, and you make your way to the room, and as soon as you get there, you begin to open the door, and you already know something is desperately wrong because it's in the air. You don't want to see it, but you do have to turn on a little bit of light so you can figure out what to do with the situation. And it's a disaster, to say the least. How in the world this little child got it up there? Who knows what in the world just took place in this crib? Now, some of you may be really good, loving parents, and you, you, know, you just have that heart, and you just run over, you know, your child is crying, and you just run over there, and you grab a hold of them and pick them up and just love them and try to quiet them down. Me, and I apologize, kid, I did this with all three of you, and multiple times probably, uh, this, is, this would be my approach. Okay, how, you know, how do we take the things off as carefully as possible so that eventually like all this can just be wrapped up in the bed sheet and just dumped down into the, the wash machine, right? And then you pick them up as 
gingerly as you can, and you take them into the bathroom and put them in their little bath thing to hose them off as best you can. And then once all that's done, they're still probably crying. And finally, I'd take them and console them and quiet them down. In a way there, I think we see a little picture, actually, of what's going on with this ceremonially cleansing. This ceremonial cleansing was to be a reminder to the people of what? God can have nothing to do with sin. He, he can't approach the mess of that. And in some way, you have to be cleaned up first. And so these ceremonial things were, were pointed as, as just a reminder for them to, to be reminded of, they had got to be cleaned up in order to come to God. Now, what's interesting here, if you notice, there's only six jars. Why six? Sometimes numbers often in Scripture are very important, right? And six is one short of seven. Seven is that number of completeness and fullness in Scripture. Six in Scripture so often is that number of incompleteness. The reason why, of course, the, the beast is marked with the number 666. It's this number of lack of quite getting there. Just coming up short. Pointing, I think, to the fact that this purification thing, it can't really accomplish what it says it can accomplish. That, that these jars, they really, they must point to something greater because these things can't really cleanse anybody and can't really wash anybody up so that they will be acceptable before God. You see, I think the problem in this story is not just a lack of wine. I think we also see that there's a problem here, a crisis, that this cleansing system isn't really able to do what they think it's able to do. And it really, it points just to the one who can, the one who can clean them up. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water. After they've done so, he tells them, take it to the master of the feast. And we read in verse 9 that the water has now become wine. In a way, John's proving part of his case from the first chapter. What did he say about Jesus? But that it's through him that all, all has been made has been made. This is the creator at work. Turning water into wine. This should be impossible. Wine takes a long time to age. To go through all of its stuff and fermentation. It's not an immediate thing except whenever Jesus is involved. When the Creator Himself is involved. When He comes on the scene as He does here. As He turns water to the wine. Wine that must be the best of wines. Maybe the best wine that anybody has ever tasted. The best wine that anyone ever will taste this side of that final wedding banquet. So, the master of ceremonies, the, the steward, whatever we want to call him, he, 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 takes, he takes the wine. He drinks it. He tastes it. And he doesn't know what's been going on. This is just a reminder. Everybody at this wedding, they think it's about the bride and the groom. Their focus is still there. It's just a few people who know what's going on. It's Jesus, it's his disciples, and as we read, it's the servants. Nobody else knows that there's something else going on here behind the scenes. And in our story, they, they don't ever learn that something else was going on behind the scenes. It seems like it's something more just for the disciples, in fact. But 
the master of the feast, he, he tastes it. And he immediately, he goes to the bridegroom, verse 10, what does he say? Everyone, he says this to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor, poor wine. But you have kept the wine until now. And this man is amazed at how good this wine is. And amazed at the fact that he would save the good wine for last. And so think about that, it just... Isn't that how God so often works? Maybe the, the, the best for last. We, we want, that's not how we want it, though. We want the best now. We lack patience, don't we? But isn't the story of Scripture pointing to the fact that, that the best is not here yet? The best is before us. The, the, the best is still yet to come. So what does Jesus do here in our passage? He takes this ritual, this cleansing ritual, this constant reminder that you have sin that must be washed away, and he turns it into something of joy. We see John's previous words already coming to fruition back in Verse 17 of chapter 1, John had said, for the law was given through Moses. The law, I think, here is represented by these purifications. He gave the law, and it was, it was meant to point to something better and something greater. But what does he also tell us? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see this truth coming to the fore. We see here on demonstration, if you will, that if the law can't do it, then Jesus will have to. And he will. And he will do it. He turns the purification water into celebration wine. And John tells us all of this, verse 11, that this sign, that this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of the seven signs that we'll see in the Gospel of John. These signs that are, that are meant to, you know, what do signs do? They, they point us to something greater. It's not just about the, oh, it's a cool miracle. It's not about this cool trick, if you will. It's about something greater. And in fact, at the very end of John, he tells us a little bit of why he wants to bring these signs before us. We read it in John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John brings us these signs to us so that we might know Jesus better. And here in particular, what should we see? But his glory manifested before us. Glory of the, the Creator coming in and, and making, in a sense, the old new. The Creator coming in, turning water from wine. We should see the glory of the Creator at work in Jesus. And the disciples, we read, they're never going to be the same, are they? And why? Because in this moment, the disciples, I think, they've seen the true and the real bridegroom. 
a story that one would expect to be all about the bride and the groom. We talked about this earlier, right? It ends up being about Jesus. He is the main character. He is the hero of this wedding. Remember the master of the feast? He, he goes to the, the bridegroom, the earthly bridegroom, and he's astonished at the bridegroom's actions. You know, nobody does this. He comes to compliment him. What must have gone through the bridegroom's thoughts? What must have been thinking? I have no clue what in the world you're talking about. The master of the feast was wrong in his identification, wasn't he? Of the one who served the good wine. But it leaves you and I, if you're reading closely, it leaves you and I wanting to just shout into the story. Because nobody knows, nobody except for the servants, the disciples, Jesus, nobody knows. And yet this is just playing out. And everybody assumes it's a gift of that bridegroom on that day. And you just want to shout in the story, no, it's Jesus. Jesus, the true, the true bridegroom. In fact, the one who, even John the Baptist, in the next chapter of John, he's going to call himself the friend of the bridegroom. We're going to continue to see these, this recognition that Jesus is the bridegroom. And we're reminded of the words that the Apostle John also shares with us, but are found in the book of Revelation. Before we read this, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb, the Lamb, the, remember the Lamb that John the Baptist spoke about, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. She couldn't purify herself. It was granted to her. It came through the blood of the Lamb. The one whose hour didn't come in our story. But whose hour would come. And he would die that death for his disciples, for his mom, just as for us. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We get to look forward to an incredible marriage supper on that last day. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. Remember, the story is to present before us and bring before us Jesus' glory. This isn't some cute story of Jesus just turning water into wine. Like it's some cool parlor trick. It's about the Lamb of God. 
who's coming into the world and is beginning his ministry, and he's come for his bride, for his people, for the church, for those who will embrace him. Here we see Jesus beginning his, his messianic ministry, and even in the beginnings of it, reminding us of the way in which he has come to do what those jars could never do. He turns that purification water into celebration wine. He begins to show us that he is going to be the fulfillment of all those things in the Old Testament, all those things that really, that, that, that aren't ways that people can really clean themselves up. They're, they're really things that point, point to them and point you and I this morning to Jesus. Doing it all so that we can behold his glory. The glory of the one and only who has come from the Father, full of grace, truth. John says this the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Disciples believed in him. Do you? Do you believe in him? Pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this sign before us. We thank you for this wonderful story that comes out of our Savior's life. We pray this day that this story, that this sign before us would point us and remind us of the glory and the wonder that you sent your Son into this world on a mission, on a mission to save and rescue your people, to do for your people what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you this morning for the lamb that was slain. We long for that last day. We long for the wedding feast, that last day. But we thank you now for the way that you are at work in and through us. We thank you for the way that you bring and remind us of the good news of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that you continue to be with your people through your spirit. We pray, would you continue to do your word of applying your word to our heart that we might be left in wonder of our Savior, that we would be left worshiping you. Would you help us, even as we're gathered now, even as we're worshiping you in prayer, would you help us to do this? Would you help us to do it now as we sing together? Oh, Father, we thank you that we can come to you now through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Listen. 